There's nothing that's more low vibration than the day after you drink alcohol. You said alcohol needs to become a wellness conversation. We need to be having this conversation alongside all of the other conversations that we're beautifully starting to have as a society about taking care of our health, about meditation, about all of these other amazing things. I think we need to ask a better question, which is, would I be a bit happier? And by the way, should I at least, do I owe it to myself to learn about the substance that I'm putting into my body? Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. Today, I got this uh, connection from my colleague, Chris Wark, who you've heard from on the show a couple, two, three times. Um, I said, hey, who have you who have you interviewed lately that you think is amazing? And he said, you got to meet Annie Grace. And I said, what's this, what's the topic? And he said, alcohol. And I said, wow, what a great idea. Like, why have I not talked about alcohol? I mean, alcohol is the most vibration lowering substance there is, right? And most of the planet drinks. Uh, so let, let's do talk about that. And so I didn't really know a whole lot about her going into this, but what I learned is that she grew up in a one room log cabin without running water or electricity um, in Colorado. And somehow she went into marketing, she got a master's degree, and she had this rapid rise to success in corporate life. And you'll definitely find her to be really articulate and smart, but she kind of tells her story with alcohol. And it's really inspiring because in the last five years, she's never had a drink and you'll know why that matters um, when she tells this story, but she talks about alcohol in a way that is really honest and really non-judgmental, and I think might inspire you to take a completely different look at it. She's uh, no longer a drinker. She's never been happier. She left her executive role uh, to write a book called This Naked Mind. And she's a skier in Colorado. She likes to travel. She's been to 26 different countries. She has a beautiful family of uh, two boys and uh, one girl and is married. And she has a 30-day challenge that I think would be a great idea for anybody who wants to raise their vibration. So Annie Grace, welcome to The Vibe Show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So we're talking about alcohol today, and this is a subject that I really haven't talked about on this show before. And so this is going to be very, very interesting because what we have the vast majority of Americans who drink alcohol, you even have most of Europe who it's, it's a, a tradition, a, a, an evening without a glass of wine or a martini is unthinkable. Um, tell us how you know, talking to people about alcohol, alcohol addiction, uh, alcoholism, binge drinking, all the things that are, have become your career. How'd you get here? Yeah, absolutely. So it was really interesting because I didn't drink a lot really in high school or college. It wasn't top of mind for me. It was kind of a take it or leave it thing. I could probably t count the times that I even really drank on one hand in college. And then my, I got married and I moved to New York city <laughs> and I remember so vividly week one on the job being asked out to happy hour and I went out and 
they're like, what are you drinking? I was like, I don't know. And I was thinking, well, sex in the city, I'll order a cosmopolitan. You know, I, I didn't even know what to order. And I ordered a cosmopolitan and I remember it was $25. And I was like, this is insane. Who does this? Right. And so I just decided I wasn't going to go out to happy hour much. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Fast forward about eight months and I'd gotten promoted a few times and I was now working for a company that was headquartered in London and big bosses were coming over and my boss came up to me and said, Annie, why aren't you showing up at happy hour? Like, what's the deal? And I was like, oh, I don't really drink. And he's like, oh, no, no, that's not what it's about. It's like the golf course. It's where the deals are done. It's where your ideas are showcased. You got, you got to come. And I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't have a cautionary tale around alcohol, which to be fair, I think society doesn't have a cautionary tale around alcohol. We kind of are going in with like, yeah, it must be good for us. I've seen an article. It's good for my heart. It helps me live longer. Drinking in moderation is healthy, all this stuff. And so I went into it like, all right, great. And I, I drank a glass of wine and I had a method, a glass of wine, a glass of water, a glass of wine, a glass of water. I remember being so worried about being tipsy that I would actually go and if I felt like I was getting too tipsy or I was going to, you know, say something silly in front of my colleagues or coworkers who are all older than me and mostly men, I would go and I would throw up the last glass of wine just so I could keep drinking more wine. And yeah, it was crazy. Fast forward a decade. I'm global head of marketing. I'm in charge of 22 countries. I'm traveling internationally twice a month and I'm drinking close to two bottles of wine a night. And it was, there was no, there was no moment in time where it changed or shifted. And I've since learned some of the like makeup of alcohol and what it does in the brain. And it's pretty simple explanation what happened to me, but I think it's, it's very true for people. We don't approach alcohol with caution in our society and over time. And yeah, it took a decade right? But over time, I found myself in a place where I didn't identify as an alcoholic, but I certainly was in pain about it. And in fact, I realized that the question I'd been asking myself was like, oh my gosh, do I have a problem? And am I an alcoholic? You know, Googling that some days when I'm too hungover, trying to see what the criteria was. And, and I realized that question was just keeping me really stuck because the answer to it was either no, which was not stressful, but kept me drinking or yes, which was so stressful and had me question my drinking, but because I was stuck and I didn't understand why, very quickly kept me drinking again to just deal with the stress of the very question. And so I kind of lingered there for years and years until one day I just started asking myself a better question. And it all started from there. And, and the question I started asking myself was what changed? What's different? So instead of saying, what's wrong with me? I started saying like, what is the deal with this substance? Like why, when I was in college, I could not even, it wasn't even a blip on my radar. And now, now it's important. Now, even if I don't drink, cause I could go, you know, I could not drink for a day. I wasn't going to go into delirium tremens or anything like that. But if I did, I would have a mental issue. I would be sad. I'd feel sorry for myself. If I had to be the designated driver, I was like, oh man, bummer. Okay. I guess it won't be that fun tonight. I was like, why is it different? And that really launched me on this year's worth of research where I discovered so many things about what we think alcohol does for us, what it really does for us. And, you know, the truth of the, the matter at, at its heart, Robin, is that we, as human beings, we do the things that we feel like doing. And I know you know this in, in your work, um, people need to ultimately feel like putting better food into their body. If they feel like sorry for themselves when they're making all these positive health choices, it's not going to last. But if they can change their mindset and feel really good about it and see the benefits, then it's going to last. And so through this research of seeing that everything I thought alcohol did for me, I thought it relieved my stress. And then 
come to realize alcohol actually increases the cortisol release in your body. That it was, you know, making me happier, come to realize that actually alcohol numbs your pleasure response to everyday stimuli. And all of these things, I was like, wow, I, I don't feel like drinking. And so I walked out of my office about a year later and I told my husband, I was like, I don't think I'm going to drink anymore. If you want to get drunk with me tonight, it's the night because I think I'm done. And he's like, what? And he didn't believe me. And so we split a bottle of wine and that was pretty much it. I mean, I've had a few sips here and there, but like it's been almost five years and, and I just don't drink. And it's not, I always say it's, it's not that I have ever said I'm never going to drink again, or I can never drink again. It's really like I drink as much as I want whenever I want. And because of what I've learned, I just haven't wanted to have a drink. And I think that type of change is, is so much different. So I, I really took that and all my research and I put it out just on the internet in this really dirty PDF full of typos and said, here, here world, because I know we need this and just found a web page to post it on um, for free, you know, just wanted to get it out there and 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. And from there, it really took a life of its own, figured out how to self-publish, was initially self-published, then the book sold so many copies, it went to auction with all the top five publishers, ended up traditionally publishing with Pangram Random House, wrote another book, started a podcast, I, I know you know the drill, and it just kind of has taken a life of its own from there. Fascinating. Well, it was um, our mutual friend, Chris Wark, who connected us. And your trajectory reminds me of his in the sense that here he like beat cancer and then he puts up this little website and then it went crazy. And now his whole life is talking about cancer all the time. And I, I've never asked him this, I've, but it's been on my mind lately. Like, hey, Chris, do you ever get sick of talking about cancer? Like, do you want your life to be completely, your life to be cancer free as well as your body to be cancer free? And, you know, it, it kind of makes me wonder too about you. Like you haven't taken a drink in five years and yet now your career has been helping people not drink. I know you have a 30 day challenge. We'll talk about that at the end. I think it's such a, I think it's such a great thing for people like not drink for 30 days because in that 30 days, it reminds me of, um, I told you that my boyfriend, John and I are on a year of no sugar and I've done it before, but he hasn't. And so I keep telling him like, I'm so proud of you for doing this because he, he eats a lot of sugar. He eats sugar every day and he eats crappy sugar. Like if they're at work and there's, there's donuts, he'll eat the donut. And I, I just wouldn't do that. And if I do eat sugar, it'll be like not every day. And it'll be like, you know, some like chocolate covered almonds from the health food store, from bulk foods at the health food store or something like that. I don't, I don't eat the super crappy sugar he does, but I already challenged that because I went a year without sugar and I keep telling him, you know, because we were talking about going on this, there's this cruise line that I love. I don't even like cruises, but there's this cruise line that I've been like, we should go on one of these cruises. And I like look at it and I talk about it all the time. And I have been for years and I'm like, Hey, what if the end of this year we went on a cruise to like Australia or whatever. And he literally texted me yesterday and he said, I don't want to do it because we're off of sugar and I don't want to go on a cruise where I can't eat the desserts and treats or whatever. And I was like, okay, but give it a couple of months and see if you still feel that way. Because my whole point when I went off completely off of sugar for a year was that what I learned is I'm completely happy without sugar. My happiness is not dependent on whether I get to eat sugar today or this year. And I had to let go of that. It was just like, I'm not having sugar this entire year, which might as well be never. Right. And so I'm not having a struggle with the the sugar thing, but alcohol is the same thing. Al alcohol does the same thing, but worse in the liver and to the body. It ages you faster than sugar ever could. Um, what are people learning when they go 30 days 
off of alcohol because to me it's like okay if I do 30 days off alcohol what would make me go back to it like by then I will will I have confronted all my you know if I'm the average person drinking alcohol will I have confronted all of my reasons why I drink and let go of them what happens in that 30 days it's such a phenomenal question I mean I really think that you can go about any break from anything two different ways you can have this willpower approach where you're like, okay, I'm just not going to do this because I know it's bad for me and I'm just going to make it happen. And then you try to like ignore it and you're like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm trying to push it away. And that when, when people do a 30 day break like that from alcohol, you know, a lot of two things really are the outcomes in the majority of cases. There are some cases where people realize they, they can't actually take a 30 day break. And, and I think that's beautiful. If you try to take a 30 day break and you realize you're really challenged, it's a, it's a huge signal to say, wait a second, maybe I need more help here. And what's beautiful about that is that especially with alcohol, you know, the train only goes one way. Like your body is constantly becoming more and more tolerant to the drinks that you're taking. And I know that's not like a positive message, but it's just chemically true. You're building a tolerance and you'll need more over time. And it's not, it's not going to spontaneously fix itself. So, so that awareness is, is huge. So first outcome, people realize they can't do it. Second outcome is people do it, but they're not really happy about it because the whole time they've been like, okay, I'm just doing this to basically you know, prove to myself I can. So they get done with it. And it's almost like the forbidden fruit syndrome where you've been on an alcohol diet for 30 days more or less. And so you have almost a diet mentality rather than a, wow, what, what, is, what am I going to gain here mentality? And then the third outcome is really that you say, okay, good. Well, I did that. So now I, I've shown myself I don't have a problem. And now I'm going to be able to, to carry on. And I tell all that from my own experience. I did all of those things. And so what I really wanted to create was a 30 day challenge that changed the mindset. Because like I said earlier, we do things we want to do and we feel like doing over the long term. I mean, yes, you can wake up with your baby in the middle of the night in the short term and not feel like doing it, or you can go to the dentist, but for long-term habits to stick, we actually generally have to change how we feel about doing that thing. And so if we can feel like, oh, I really feel like an iced tea instead of a drink, that is a place for me of really true freedom. And I, I, I find it funny that you brought this whole conversation up with that question for Chris about like, does cancer, you know, do you want your life to be cancer free? Because that was one of the reasons that for me, AA wasn't an option because I was like, I want alcohol to be small and irrelevant. I want freedom for it. I don't want it to be that I'm actually having to go to meetings every day to talk about the thing I'm no longer doing. You know, I don't want to create, I don't want to have brain power allocated to alcohol. And now obviously I do it for work, but it's such a different dynamic that this for me is really about like helping people and awakening people to some of the truths about alcohol. And it has nothing to do with my own sort of struggle anymore. So I don't mind at all that it's in my life, but from a perspective of, was I going to be dwelling on it every day in a meeting about the fact I didn't drink? That sounded really, really frankly miserable to me. And so I think what the key is, and this sugar is such a phenomenal example of this. The key is to try to understand what beliefs that you hold that are keeping the desire alive. So for me with alcohol, the beliefs that I held, and I held these beliefs, like I believed the sky was blue, that alcohol relaxed me, that I needed it to network, that I needed it to have sex and loosen up, that I needed it to enjoy myself at a party and have a good time. I believed these things so, I couldn't even see they were beliefs, right? And I think sugar is a great example because we have these underlying beliefs about sugar that we don't realize. So I'll give you a really tangible example. 
you walk through the bakery at the grocery store and you see all of these beautifully decorated cakes and cupcakes and frosting. And most people are not tempted to just stop and open the box of cupcakes or put them in their cart even because you a haven't just done that at the grocery store. So you haven't kind of created that habit or neural connection, but B there's no meaning there. Whereas if you're at a birthday party, I know for me, if I'm at like a birthday party and the cake is brought out, it's hard for me to say no to a piece of cake. The cakes at the grocery store, there's so many more. <laughs> they're so much prettier. There's, there's tons more abundance, but I don't even crave it. But then if you look at this, okay, what have I made a piece of cake at a birthday party mean? There's an underlying meaning there of celebration, of being part of the tribe, of not feeling left out, of, you know, and all of these things, actually, we think it's just, I'm craving the sugar, I'm craving the cake. Well, no, if those, if the, if the meaning of tribal connection, of being part of things, of celebrating, of I deserve it, was no longer there, you wouldn't be craving the cake, which is mind blowing. And so my work is really about digging into the beliefs that we have, both conscious and subconscious beliefs about alcohol, so that when we let go of it, it's so free, you kill the desire. You don't want to. Alcohol becomes as attractive as like a glass of motor oil. So of course it's easy not to drink it. I've gone to multiple all-inclusives now, not drinking alcohol. The only thing that annoys me is I'm like, like I feel like they should have a, you know, a a deal. <laughs> You're overpaying. You're totally overpaying if you go to an all-inclusive and don't drink. <laughs> but I'm I'm still not tempted to drink. I just I just feel like they should give me a non-drinker discount. <laughs> oh, you've said so much here. Um, way back at the beginning, you said we don't approach alcohol with caution in our in our society, and I that really hit me hard, Annie, because I come from an alcoholic grandfather. Uh, may he rest in peace and his fifth wife also an alcoholic and they came together in trauma his first wife my grandmother had killed herself her son had killed himself they were drowning their sorrows they came together in alcoholism and chain smoking and they at some point right about my age somewhere around 52 ish they both gave it up they both never smoked never drank again and he he died in his in his 90s and I don't think he would have lived to his 90s had he not given those two things up. But um but that like died a long time ago like my ne- my kids never knew him and then my parents and my uh then husband and I like nobody drank alcohol. And so my kids have nothing no reference point. They don't know they didn't know anybody who drinks. Now my kids are all kind of doing their own thing and they all went away to college and they left this very conservative town where nobody drinks and they have no reference point. And one thing that was really disturbing to me is that when anybody, I have, I have multiple people close to me who drink a bottle of wine a night or more. Not, not people close to me, but people I know. I can think of like five who have told me I drink a bottle of wine a night or more, um, including someone very, very famous. And they compare themselves to the phys- the physical dependency alcoholic. And you you said the word delirium tremens. And I actually don't know that word, but I'm assuming you mean like the people who are physically dependent so that they have to drink 24 hours a day. And if they don't, then they get the shakes. And my, my boyfriend has a friend of a friend and we've probably hung out with him five or six times. So I've been around him and he literally has a water bottle full of vodka. At all times, he drinks 24 hours a day. He wakes up during the night and drinks vodka. And if he doesn't, he goes into the shakes. Is that what delirium tremens is? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And so like there's plenty of people who are assuaging their 
guilt or their worry about their drinking by saying, well, I don't have that. Like I can not drink all day or I can. Um, and so, and, and you know, people do the same thing with food. It's like, well, I, I eat healthy because I eat healthier than my neighbor. Well, I eat healthy because I don't ever go to a fast food drive through And that's like not at all. Those aren't good reference points. It's all relative to you. So you you decided that you drank too much and you decided that it had too much charge and too much meaning and you just wanted to you just wanted to stop. And you touched on some things that are like the reasons people drink and I want you to talk more about that because it's not in people don't talk about that that people have to confront when they don't drink for 30 days, let alone give it up permanently. The sex isn't as good. You said that or or they think that. They think that or if I go to a party, I'll be um, I think a lot of people think I'll be bored at the party. I can't remember the last time I went to a party without drinking. Um, talk more about that because that's just like, that almost shocked me that you said all that stuff because it's like, that's exactly what people think and nobody talks about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I get into that, I just want to touch on something you said that was so fascinating. And it's this idea of like, we compare ourselves to the fringe right? And we compare ourselves to, and, and the reality is, according to the Center for Disease Control, 90% of excessive drinkers, so people who are drinking in excess, are not chemically dependent. So when we say, oh, well, I'm not like an alcoholic, I'm not on the fringe, that has nothing to do with how good or bad or healthy alcohol is or isn't for you. And I feel that one of the things that I'm so passionate about is like, we have to change this conversation because right now, alcohol you either, it's this black or white narrative. You have a problem with it or you don't. And it's, it's, we don't treat anything else like that, by the way, we can cut down on, on lots of other things. But if you talk about cutting down on sugar, fine, no problem. You talk about cutting down on alcohol, oh my gosh, are you sure? Do you have a problem? What's happening? What's wrong? Do you need support? Like it's a very sort of stigmatized thing where I think that the shift here is that alcohol needs to become a wellness conversation. We need to be having this conversation alongside all of the other conversations that we're beautifully starting to have as a society about taking care of our health, about meditation, about all of these other amazing things. And when we, we've limited this conversation to this, either I'm out an alcoholic and then I have to change or I'm a normal drinker and then I'm fine. And that term alcoholic, I think keeps people stuck because I know it kept me stuck. I was asking that question, am I an alcoholic? If the answer is no, meaning I don't have to carry vodka in my water bottle and I can still take a 30 day break here and there, then there's no reason to even look at it or no reason to change. And I think we need to ask a better question, which is, would I be a bit happier? And by the way, should I at least, do I owe it to myself to learn about the substance that I'm putting into my body more than probably any anything else in quantity, right? And and so just to dive into that specifically, like um, we we think that alcohol, you know, loosens us up, right? We think, oh, everybody says that it's the thing that it just makes you more you. You just feel more in the now. You feel you know all of these things. Well, what alcohol actually does in the brain is it slows down your synapses. So it means that you take longer to think. Now, if you've been thinking all day and you have not done any work on your thinking and those thinking thoughts are mostly negative and mostly stressful, and then you have a drink and those thoughts are suddenly slowed down, that feels really good in the moment. But here's the kicker. Alcohol is a stimulant and a depressant. So it stimulates you for 20 minutes. It feels good. You feel the tipsy. You feel the kind of the edge coming off the euphoric feeling. And you have this 20 minutes of stimulant. But is, that's when the alcohol, your blood alcohol is rising. So your BAC, your blood alcohol content is rising. 20 to 30 minutes. 
it plateaus and it starts to fall. And that's when alcohol becomes a depressant. And that's 20 to 30 minutes after your first drink. And the feeling of your blood alcohol falling, you're anxious, you're uneasy, you're not quite comfortable, you feel tired, you feel just on edge. Now, we don't associate that with the drink we just took because that drink make, made us feel good. Our brains say, oh, so we need another drink. And you can see this in people's drinking patterns. They probably order another drink every 20 minutes or so. But the problem is that uh, the stimulant is 20 to 30 minutes. The kicker is that the you know, depressant aspect of it, your blood alcohol content falling, is two to three hours per drink. And in that time, when it's a depressant, your body releases cortisol. It releases adrenaline. So it actually stresses you out more. And they did these phenomenal studies, but one was on mice and they basically gave mice normal amounts of alcohol, you know, as if they were little mice drinkers and they put them through stressful situations. And over time, their ability to handle the natural stresses that came into their life was diminished, even when they were drinking and especially when they were drinking. And so it, it in the moment, totally tricks us. I mean, it tricks us into saying, okay, because it feels very quickly. It goes directly you know, into your bloodstream, into your brain. It feels very quickly like, oh, okay. But it only lasts a very short amount of time and it, it induces us to drink that next drink. And then when we're thinking about something like lowering inhibition, we're like, but it makes me more me. I'm, I remember saying, oh my gosh, I would always say, I don't trust people who don't drink, right? Because <laughs> if so funny in hindsight. But um, the thing is, is it doesn't actually make you more you, which is the common thing that we believe. It actually just makes you more primal because it turns off your prefrontal cortex or the higher self or the higher human part of your brain. So it damages it over time. Drinking damages that part of your brain, which means the more you drink, the harder it is to make good decisions around alcohol. But it also damages it in the very short term which means as soon as you have one drink, your prefrontal cortex is impaired. And so it makes you myopic. It makes you unable to think about the, the consequences of the next drink or the consequences of texting the ex-boyfriend or the consequences of having just one more because your prefrontal cortex like shuts off. It literally is, is like, mur, 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 okay, higher self, turn you off and let's just let this kind of more, you know, the part of ourselves that, that isn't, fully conscious and human in control. Fascinating. And um, why does, does the drinker wake up at 2 a.m. and can't go back to sleep? Well, it's like this release of, of carbohydrates. I mean, alcohol has lots of carbohydrates. It's metabolized very similar to sugar. It's, it's not actually sugar. Alcohol doesn't contain sugar, pure alcohol. The mixers certainly do, but it's metabolized very similarly. And so you, it can turn off your conscious brain, like slow it down to the point where you almost basically pass out. But then the release of all of it and the anxiety and the adrenaline that ends up being released has you boom, wide awake in the middle of the night. And then not only are you feeling all the effects of coming off the alcohol, when you drink daily, you are going through alcohol withdrawals daily. And no, they're not like shakes, like delirium tremens or hallucinations, but they are that negative, nasty, anxiety-inducing feeling that you're feeling daily. And sometimes you're lucky enough to sleep through it, but we all know that sometimes we're not. And then boom, we're awake, we're adrenalized, we're hyper anxious. We are wondering what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world. And I know for me, I would have that almost nightly. But then the craziest part is because I didn't feel, as humans, if we don't think there's a solution or we don't think there's an answer or we don't feel capable of it, 
I didn't feel capable of just drinking less because by the way, I'd tried that so many numerous times. Okay, I know I'm drinking too much. I'm just going to have a few less drinks. I'm just going to set myself these rules. The problem with rules is that once you have one drink, you don't have the, the wherewithal or the consciousness of mind, again, the prefrontal cortex, to keep these rules. So you end up breaking these promises to yourself. You end up living in this place of like broken promises, tons of self-loathing, middle of the night anxiety, and the best solution to that in the short term feels like drinking. And that's compounded with the fact that alcohol itself is like literally addicted to the human brain. And that's not just addictive to brains that are, you know, of this certain fraction of our population that we call alcoholics, because that term isn't even like medically or scientifically recognized anymore, but just addicted, addictive to the brain because it over-releases and artificially stimulates dopamine. And dopamine is the thing that says, hey, that thing you just did, do that thing again, right? And, you know, dopamine comes from target practice because we needed to know how to do that back in the day to um, hunt or dopamine comes from sex because obviously procreation or dopamine comes from finding raspberries if you were a caveman and stuff like that. And so it says, oh, do that thing again. And since our alcohol and by the way, high fructose corn syrup, Instagram, first person shooter video games, all of these things release dopamine at artificially high levels, which means the brain releases it at a level that a natural stimulation, not a man-made stimulation, and by the way, not a stimulation created for a profit, would release it. We, the brain says that thing, do that again. And, and why? For survival. And so for humans, that craving of, I need a drink at 5 p.m., we're like, oh, it's no big deal. But the truth neurochemically is that it is a big deal. You say no to that drink at 5 p.m. And, and the truth is a lot of us haven't. We haven't tried to go 30 days. We haven't tried to go one day. But you say no to that and you start to see the power of that craving. And it's not your fault. It's, it's because you're made up of blood, flesh, and bone. And it's because as humans, your brain reacts to that. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's learned how to survive based on the mechanism of dopamine. But in this case, it's just erroneously learned that alcohol is the key for survival. So interesting. You know, Chris work often says 99% is hard, 100% is easy. Um, and that's the approach I've taken with this 2020 zero sugar thing that John and I are doing is, you know, if I'm allowed to have sugar now and then, then I'm going to constantly have this debate going on in my head of whether I'm going to have the sugar. And I, I love your example of how, you know, like I never put the cupcakes in my basket at the store ever, 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 ever would I walk past all the bakery stuff and put it in my cart. And yet if I'm at a party for some reason, it's like this whole like anguish and this ridiculous thing. And, and this is what I've been trying to tell John. Like when we decide we're not having any sugar, then we literally just like, if someone's offering us sugar or there's something that we like at this restaurant or whatever, like as soon as we have the thought, we go, oh yeah, we're, we're, I'm not having that debate. Like that's not even, that's not a thing here. Um, and then you might have like a, a second of torment or feeling sorry for yourself or whatever, but that's about it because the, the decision was already made a long time ago. So I think, you know, alcohol is probably uh, the same thing. We actually had a debate of whether we were going to give up 100% give up sugar or alcohol this year. And um, one of those was easier for one of us and the other one was easier for the other of us. And so, um, but, you know, very similar. And we've been having a lot of conversations about what it means. And and so talk a little bit about, and I think you kind of already covered it. And I don't care if you said the exact same thing again. I think the things that are coming out of your mouth are so important. You can literally just say it again, but 
How about, you know, because this show is about how to live in the higher vibrations. How about the fact that if you drink alcohol, the next morning you wake up and you don't, even if you're not hungover, even if you didn't have much to drink, categorically, you wake up the next morning and you don't want to do your day and you don't want to get up and slay the dragon and solve the problems and be the loving spouse. And like everything feels overwhelming the next morning when you drink alcohol the night before, even if you weren't drunk. Talk about that a little bit. So it's, it's incredibly fascinating. The body sees alcohol as a toxin and I know that's not good news and nobody wants to hear it and all that sort of stuff. I mean, alcohol, the thing that gets us drunk is ethanol and ethanol is also the thing that goes in your gas tank. And ethanol is in all alcohol. It's, it's like the mechanism of what, what makes us feel the certain way. And so the body says, oh my gosh, this is a toxin. And it, it, it sees it as such an intense toxin that it actually shuts down other processes in the body in order to eliminate the alcohol faster. So your body will stop digesting food. And it's really interesting because you know those like 2 a.m., <laughs> probably not you, Robin, but the 2 a.m. Taco Bell runs that maybe people did in college, I certainly did, where you're like, you've been drinking all night and you feel so hungry. And you're like, but I ate dinner, but I'm so hungry at 2 a.m. Well, the truth is that your body just has not had a chance to digest and process and nourish itself from the dinner you ate because it stops all processes in order to just eliminate the alcohol. So if you've been drinking all night, you feel starving at 2 a.m. because the, the, the food is just still sitting there. And, and it does that with all sorts of other stuff. And because it has to exert so much effort and energy just detoxifying from alcohol, you don't feel like doing anything else. And I mean, that's not even to talk about, yeah, what I did talk about before, which is just this idea that as alcohol leaves your system and those withdrawal symptoms that you're going through, they feel nasty. You feel anxious and uneasy. You feel let down and we don't connect it. At least I didn't. I would wake up in the morning feeling hungover and be like, oh gosh, life sucks. Why am I so tired? You know, but I wouldn't, and, and my second thought was probably like, oh, how long till 5 p.m.? You know, when can I get a drink, right? And so we don't, we don't think but the truth is that a lot of the pleasure of a drink when you're drinking on a regular basis is because it's scratching the itch of withdrawal. It's making that withdrawal symptom numb. And, and you're going through withdrawal every single day. Even if you just have one drink of alcohol, your body has to go through the entire process of, of getting it out of your system. And tolerance is actually your body just getting more and more efficient at getting it out of your system. So you feel drinks less. Why? Because your body says, oh no, here we go again. Let me get this out of your system as quickly as possible. And so you have less time that the things that produce the actual feelings of drinking exist. So whereas when, you know, my first drink, one beer, I'd feel it for two or three hours, be like, oh my gosh, wow. You know, by the time I was done drinking, I could drink close to two bottles of wine a night and never even really feel drunk. And I remember having that experience of like, gosh, I don't even feel it. What am I doing? And, but you want to do it because you crave it because that survival mechanism of dopamine has kicked in. And so it seems like the thing that if you don't do, your whole life is gonna fall apart. You know, on one hand, I was so sure that alcohol was like the duct tape that was keeping my entire life together. <laughs> Whereas really it was, it was basically like the dynamite that was exploding at all at the seams, but I couldn't see that because in the, in the short term, all I knew was that, yeah, you have that drink at 5 PM and oh my gosh, you feel better for the first time all day. It's scratching an itch. But the thing about an itch is that if you had taken a break from alcohol, say you're 30 days alcohol free and you have that drink, 
It doesn't feel nearly as good. Why? Because you're not itchy. <laughs> it does not feel good to scratch an itch you don't have, right? And, and so I think that's just one of these mechanisms. And the thing that really compounded it for me personally is like, wow, look at all the time. I knew I was spending time thinking about what I was going to drink, spending time drinking what I was drinking, spending time recovering from drinking what I was drinking, spending time feeling hungover, spending time feeling tired, spending time feeling anxious, spending a lot of mental energy. And it was just like, this is taking up so much of my life. And it's something that people, you know, that have gone through um, my alcohol experiment, which is a 30 day challenge, like say over and over again, they're like, what do I do with all this time? Oh my gosh. I know, I know people who have started, you know, new areas of their business and like grown their business to a million dollars, like in three months, just because they have time to do it. Or people who have written like multiple people have written books. I mean, it's incredible how much time it takes up that, that we lose to that whole cycle that we don't even, we're not even conscious of. Yeah, that's so true. I think, um, I remember saying this many, many years ago about, um, the family that I was married into, uh, it felt like, you know, they had been over a hundred pounds overweight for so long that they forgot what life was like when they could move freely. And so they didn't realize anymore because too much time had passed, like what they gave up, like, Oh, there's no, there's no hiking. Oh, there's no, um, you know, like pushing the stroller with the little kids in it. There's like one by one, we lose those things. And then we forget how much better life was when we had all these, um, you know, had no limitations on our physical abilities. And I I think drinking is the same way. We just kind of slowly get used to the fact that mornings are a struggle and that anxiety is a constant companion in our day, that everything feels insurmountable starting Monday morning and, or, or, or whatever it is. And so like, you know, I just felt like when Chris told me that he had met you and that you are really incredible to have a conversation with about alcohol, I was like, I have to do the alcohol thing because there's nothing that's more low vibration than the day after you drink alcohol. Even if you think that you're just chatty and bubbly and more loving and more expressive, you're saying that when you remove that frontal lobe, uh, reasoning that long-term reasoning. I wonder if that's, I think that's the thing that we like. Talk about that. Like the, the thing that we like about drinking is that those social boundaries, we're more likely to hug someone. We're more likely to express love. We're more, I mean, there's the people who get mean when they're, when they're drinking, but I think they're a pretty small minority, but others are just like, I really like how I am socially. Like, can people, tap into that? Like what, what's going on there in the brain that makes them more likely to express love uh, and, and like have those sort of boundaries in their mind come down? Am I even, am I even expressing that well? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's such a great question. And it's really twofold. So first of all, just to touch on what, you know, that um, aspect of the prefrontal cortex. So imagine you're going through a day, right? And we all have thoughts and most of our thoughts repeat themselves from the day before. And I think that we can very intentionally over time really become aware of our thinking and change our thinking. And I think that that raises our vibration in, in such a powerful and incredible way. And obviously, you know, things like gratitude and, and replacing it and with from negativity and all that sorts of stuff. But most people who haven't taken that step into really conscious living and by conscious living, I mean conscious of what I'm thinking, taking full responsibility of what I'm thinking, really realizing that it's not my circumstances that are going to make me happy or not happy, but it's my inside life. It's my thought life that is going to kind of make or break how my emotions are. 
And when you haven't done that, and I can speak from my own experience, I hadn't done that. I had never done that. I was just chasing the dream of, okay, when I get married, I'll be happy. When I have a kid, I'll be happy. When I have that house, I'll be happy. When I have the career, I'll be happy. And then all of a sudden, there I was, beautiful home in Colorado, two kids, handsome husband, really lucrative senior management job. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not happy. (laughs) What? And so then I had to go through that, like, okay, why am I not happy? And a lot of it was just that the thoughts that were repeating themselves, that we have thought loops, we have thought patterns. And so alcohol takes that and and makes it go away. So you walk into a party, to give you a very tangible example, you have some thoughts that are like, everybody's looking at me, nobody, you know, what are they gonna think? Maybe they don't like this, maybe I'm not welcome. And, And your thoughts are running and they're running rampant and you've never done the work to really change your thinking to, um, walking into a party and having thoughts like, okay, how can I, how can I get to know somebody? I'm so curious about the people here. How can I show up for these people? Which, by the way, those thoughts give you a whole different experience of any party, drinking or not drinking. But you walk into a party and you have all those thoughts. You have a drink. Alcohol, by definition, numbs your brain. It makes your thoughts slower. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you have relief from those thoughts. So boom, there you are. All those thoughts have gone away. The thing is, those thoughts can go away just by being becoming really conscious of them. Now, there's another aspect, though, that is even more telling. And I am actually very excitingly working with a research team in a university in Australia right now about kind of researching this because my thesis is, and, and I believe that this is true with the thousands of people I've kind of talked to, is that there is a humongous placebo effect happening here. And here's why. I had the experience of feeling stressed after a long day, walking out of my office, and I got really mindful about my drinking. Like, what is it really doing for me? How is this really feeling? Do I really want this drink? Am I just drinking this because someone put it into my hand and started, how am I feeling five minutes into it? Is it a really good feeling? Is it not? Like, just asking myself those questions, going like deep into the experience, getting really curious about it to say, is this actually fun? <laughs> and, um, and in doing that, I remember I would walk out of my office every single day. I would pour myself a glass of wine and I felt relief. And the craziest part is I either felt relief right at taking that first sip before it had even gotten into my bloodstream, or I felt relief at pouring it. And so that kind of, and I see it over and over where now that I don't drink, I walk into a party and I'm ready to crack the inappropriate jokes. I'm ready to, you know, have the fun. I'm, I'm ready to go because I don't have that, okay, well, I need a few drinks. And that belief by itself can keep you stuck. So I walk into a party and people are like all kind of subdued. And then, you know, finally the alcohol gets flowing and oh, okay, now you turn everybody on. But sometimes they get like that before they even drink the alcohol. It's just such a, it's such a mental crutch that we think, okay, if I have a drink in my hand, then I'm that person. But without a drink in my hand, I'm this person. And so there's, there's, believe it or not, there's just this huge placebo effect of this very deep-seated belief that alcohol helps me socialize. And, you know, when you can get rid of that, what my best advice for anybody who's deciding like, okay, I want to put that to the test. And I'm all about put it to the test in your own life, you know, experiment on your own experiences, get mindful in your own uh, life and see what's true for you is go to a party, make the decision ahead of time that you're not going to drink, go to somewhere that makes you, you know, a little bit uncomfortable about the idea of not drinking and don't go into it with expectations of having a nasty time. That was always my expectation. I always thought, okay, I'm going to go into that party. And if I'm not drinking, it's just going to be miserable, right? Let go of those expectations, replace them just with this like total curiosity. Okay. All I, I'm, I'm literally the observer of my experience tonight. I'm going to walk in here and I'm just going to be curious. How do I feel? 
And maybe you're going to feel like crap. Maybe you're going to feel amazing. But when you let go of all the expectations that it's going to suck, because we have this thought, if I'm not drinking, I'm not going to be fun. And when we get rid of that thought, we open up this huge possibility that like, well, I might actually be fun. Or if I'm not drinking, I'm not going to have fun. Or alcohol is so key to relaxing. But that thought is a huge part of what keeps us stuck. If we decide we're going to have a bad time, if we tell our brain it's not going to be fun, it won't be fun. <laughs> what we tell ourselves is so incredibly powerful. So yes, there's, there's a whole aspect. And, and the third part about it that I'll just say, because it's, it's worth saying, is that the mechanism of alcohol is that it overstimulates for that short period of time the pleasure centers in our brain. So not only does it overstimulate dopamine production, but it overstimulates like the nucleus accumbens and the parts of the brain that register pleasure. Again, it does it for a very short period of time before it kind of turns on itself and it starts feeling bad. And, and you know this if you get really drunk, that's where you can see this, where you can get into the weepy drunk or the angry drunk once you're really drunk. Um, but initially, if you keep very slowly raising the blood alcohol content, you, you continue to feel that kind of more positive feelings. But the problem is that because it's overstimulating that, your brain responds to maintain homeostasis. It's so desperate, your brain and body, to maintain homeostasis, to keep itself balanced. And so your brain will actually respond by counter-releasing a chemical called CREB, which produces a chemical called dynorphin. And what dynorphin does is it turns down the pleasure you're receiving. Now, this is another aspect of tolerance. It means that you need to drink more in order to receive the same amount of pleasure from a drink. The problem is that dynorphin, because it's natural to the body, unlike alcohol, the body's like, okay, job one is getting it out. We're going to shut down other systems to purge the alcohol. Dynorphin's natural to the body. So <laughs> dynorphin stays in your system. So all of a sudden, the things that used to be fun aren't fun anymore without a drink. And that's like neurochemical. That's why a 30 day break is so amazing because it gives your brain the time to rebalance itself. So you can be like, oh my gosh, you know, going to a sporting event is actually fun. Going to a concert is actually fun. But if you've been doing it for so long that you kind of, you basically have this base level, you're wading through, if you will, this level of dynorphin in your brain. And I like to think of dynorphin as like the opposite of endorphin. So it's the downer chemical instead of the upper chemical and, and you have it in there. So things that are going to release endorphins aren't going to feel as good. Like you literally by drinking on a regular basis are numbing your brain's ability to feel pleasure from all the things that used to give you pleasure, which is one of the reasons it's, it's so insidious. And it, you can so quickly go from having a drink on occasion to having a drink every single night. Yeah, it's amazing when you think of it that way and, and tragic that, that people lose their um, ability to enjoy the things they used to do before they, before they drank because they start to associate it with drinking. Like, oh, I used to enjoy traveling. But now I associate it with as soon as I sit down on the airplane, I get a drink or I used to enjoy going to a concert and then I started drinking at concerts and now I can't imagine the concert being fun if I don't have alcohol and that whole, that whole thought process. But what's really exciting is that you're telling me that people can change those thought patterns and get back to where they enjoy sex without alcohol. They enjoy going to a party, even if it's with people they don't know, without alcohol. You've you've done that, right? I, I saw, I'm going to ask you about that, but I saw a YouTube um, little documentary. I think it's about 45 minutes or something by, by Elizabeth Vargas. Have you, have you seen that, Annie? It's on my list. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, I've heard of it for sure. Yeah, for some reason, um, YouTube showed it to me. And Elizabeth Vargas, if you are like, hey, that name sounds familiar, it's because she's very 
well-known anchor woman. So she's a, a, what do you call it, TV journalist or whatever. And uh, if you see her, you'll know exactly who she is. She's maybe not as famous as Diane Sawyer, but you know, next tier. And it's actually Diane Sawyer who interviews her. And this this whole thing is about her new book that she just released. And Diane Sawyer asks her at one point in this interview where we learn about how, just like you, Annie, she, you know, had this career that was on the rise. She was working super hard. She got married. She had a couple little kids and she drank socially and it was never a problem. And then somewhere she started to realize, hey, drinking is a problem for me. And she was, um, they even show on this, uh, this little documentary, uh, sort of her bottom out, bottoming out period or her low point where she was on vacation somewhere and a film crew needed to come interview her for a story she'd been working on, but she hadn't been planning on it. But like the network reached out to her and they're like, Hey, we need to come. I want to say it was like nine in the morning, but she's on vacation. And they actually showed audio clips of her inability to string a sentence together. And that's where you like realize it. Cause it's hard. Like you look at her and she looks good. I mean, she looks, she's fit and thin and not what you think of when you think of someone who's constantly drunk. But like you, she got to the point where she was like a bottle of wine, sometimes two um, before going to bed. And, and, uh, but Diane Sawyer actually asked her at one point in the documentary, Hey, you're only two years sober. Are you sure? Are you sure that this is a success? Are you sure you're ready to put a pin in this right now? Like that's pretty, you're pretty young in your journey, which I thought was quite brave of Diane Sawyer. And, and Elizabeth Vargas was surprisingly um, uh, not defensive about it. But you're you're five years in and I bet there's more to the story that you started with. You know, I always start with my story like in bullet points too, that you told your husband you know what? Tonight, let's we're going to get drunk tonight. This is going to be the last time and you haven't had another drink since. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Like, did he support you? Did he like social drinking too, but maybe he just didn't feel like he had a problem with it? Like, what was that like? And I just want you to go into what's to be gained because, you know, I mean, you've touched on a lot of things, but what's the last 5 years been like for you compared to before? Do you miss drinking? Are you ever tempted? What what can you tell people about that? Because I think it'll make a lot of people want to try your 30-day challenge. Yeah, it's such a good, good question. I um, It's interesting because I don't look at this like I'm about to fall off a cliff if I have a drink. And I think that's something that's pretty unique about me because I know that, you know, people look at like, okay, I'm in long-term recovery. I'm a long-term sobriety. I, you know, I'm, I'm really there. And I, I actually like when I'm on, you know, TV or something and they ask me like, so, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I drink whatever I want, whatever I want. I just haven't wanted to drink. And I think that's, that's sort of the crux of it. And one of the reasons that that's true for me is because I know that the brain, if you say I'm never going to do something again, it immediately like freaks out and is like, what do you mean? That does, what, what if this, what if that, what if you're 90, what if you're 95, what if you want to have champagne at your granddaughter's wedding and you're 95 years old and you know what I mean? And I'm like, I don't, I don't want that, any of that. I just, I just want to make a conscious decision in the day. And if that changes, that changes, you know, but um, as of this point, so to answer your question, I did have one really unique detail that I, I think is worth sharing about that story. My husband did support me a few years later. He did kind of very naturally just stop drinking. It was very, he didn't really drink all that much anyway. And then he'd read the book and he went through it and 
he'd be like, Hey, do you want me to order you a drink? He's like, no, I'm good. And then finally he's like, yeah, I just haven't had a drink in like two years now. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. And it was a very just organic thing where I was like, why don't you drink anymore? He's like, I, I cannot see the point. Like I just can't see any point because he started to, I think when you, when you become really mindful about it, you're like, huh, it doesn't do what I thought it was doing for me. And so it's hard to, it's hard to justify doing it anymore, you know, um, which is really interesting. But so about, I, I think it was like 45 days, maybe two months after. And I was kind of starting to have, I think the moment that a lot of people have, which is like, huh, maybe I made too big of a deal out of this. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Like maybe alcohol is fine. All my friends still like it. All my friends are still drinking. I remember it was St. Patrick's day and everybody was drinking and I was like, it seems like no big deal. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, go and get drunk in front of my iPhone camera and videotape myself. And I'm going to see, and I'm going to tell myself exactly how it feels. And I'm going to see exactly what I'm missing. Like what's good about it? What do I enjoy? What's not good about it? And like, just literally do that. And so I did that. And I mean, I couldn't even watch the videos for years because I was like, I knew that I went from someone who's this happy, present, fun loving person to just this grumpy out of it, you know, not like I thought the things I was saying was funny, but they weren't funny. And you can see it in my eyes and just seeing yourself get drunk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Very, and, and then I knew there was nothing left for me there. I was like, I'm, I'm not even tempted anymore because I just remember that. And the positive sides, I was like, okay, I feel like the edges of the room are a bit fuzzier. Like it feels like things are like a bit pillowier, a little bit softer, but it, it, there was nothing that it was like, oh yeah, this is fun, you know? And I had done it in a very conscious way where I separated it from all other experiences that might've been fun. And I think what you said is spot on. Like we create associations with going to a concert or being at a wedding or being out with, we, we tie up alcohol with our most favorite things to do. You look at kids, right? They're at a birthday party. They're going crazy. They might need a little bit to loosen up and see who's who and find out who they're going to hang out with. But then they're off and they're running and they're screaming and they're just having such a great time. No alcohol included. Like you look at a high school locker room after winning a big game, like they're so happy and excited. They don't need alcohol. But then we decide that no alcohol needs to be part of all of these fun things. And we create this association. And then of course it goes further than that because the brain actually can you know, make it so that things aren't as fun without alcohol as I was describing before. And suddenly we're in this situation where we think, wow, um, we need alcohol to have fun. And I will tell you that one of the benefits, one of the most beautiful moments is I thought that I needed alcohol to really be creative and to network well. And to, I was in a, you know, I was head of marketing. So it was a lot of partnerships and closing deals and and um, trade shows and stuff like that. And I was so sure that alcohol was like the key to my success in my corporate life. And I stopped drinking. I still was traveling internationally. I went to Brazil without drinking. I went to the UK. I went to Amsterdam. I went to Paris. I went to Australia, all of these trips sober. And to realize that no, actually, when I get let go of the belief that alcohol was needed and I got curious, is it needed? I got to realize that, oh my gosh, no, wait a second, I'm fun and life is fun and I'm good at my job and I'm creative and none of those things were actually coming from the bottle. And I don't, I think there's few things more empowering than realizing that all the things that you had been giving alcohol the credit for actually are within you 
to begin with. (laughs) And then there's all the vanity things. Like I lost 13 pounds in 30 days just by giving up alcohol, not by making any more changes. When I, when I first started um, on this journey, my skin got so much clearer. People say I look better now than I did, you know, 10 years ago. Like my face and my eyes are, are more clear, just less puffiness, less redness, um, feel so much clearer and never have regrets about what I'm going to say or do. And I think that because that whole dynorphin is gone completely, I find myself like laughing, like the snort milk out of your nose type laughing on a much more regular basis. And I will caveat that to say that to live without alcohol is to say when things are hard, I'm not numbing it. And it's amazing because not numbing it is a gift within itself. You have to actually go and say, okay, things are hard. What's hard? I need to lean into this. I need to fix this. I need to solve it. But to not just have this numbing agent, but I like to say that alcohol is like a bandaid that you put on a wound and um, you don't actually heal the wound. You just put this bandaid and create this, this place for dark and warm and it festers. And so you drink and deal with whatever stress you're dealing with, but you don't, you don't address it. Right. And so it is intense. You're, you're going to live with all of your emotions <laughs> wide open. You're going to live kind of how we were intended to live without numbing our brain. And it is intense, but it's also such a gift because I really believe that our emotions are our guide and they can alert us to when something's just not right. I mean, it's amazing and people can stay in whether it's a job that they know is sucking their soul or even a relationship and, um, or whatever it is in situations and circumstances, you add on the numbing effect of alcohol and you can tolerate so much more than you deserve really. And I think that's a, a kind of brutal, but beautiful side effect of, of taking a break. Oh, that's so hopeful and so, so exciting. And I think it's the perfect time to ask you to tell us about your 30 day challenge. How do you support people in it? Or is there a community where people support each other? Is there a Facebook page? Give us the the web address for it and just tell my listeners uh, where they can learn more about what you're doing. Awesome. So um, it is uh, alcoholexperiment.com and it's an off Facebook community. And it is a community. There's a hundred thousand people so far have gone through it, just over a hundred thousand. And every day you receive an email and a video from me And it's really all about shifting the mindset. So you go in there, you choose your start date. It doesn't have to be the day you sign up for an account. So you can go in there and kind of get familiar with the whole thing. Then you choose your start date and that will kick off a series of of 30 kind of emails and videos. And every day in the platform, you actually are, there's a private journaling area. And then there's like lots of just comments and conversations on all the videos. So you're connecting with other people. And it really, with the intention of, by day, you know, instead of by day 15, you're like, yes, I made it halfway through. I can't wait to, to get done with this. It's really like by day 15, you're like, wow, this is cool. I feel so much better than I I've been feeling, huh? Maybe I'll even go longer, you know, and it just opens up a whole new realm of possibility because it really, it really exposes a lot of things and challenges your thinking. Well, I have a feeling that some of my listeners are going to find this a total godsend and whether they're they're struggling themselves or someone close to them has, I have a feeling this is going to be one of the most shared episodes um, because we all know someone who's struggling. And so I'm really grateful for this conversation and how honest you are about your own journey. I think that we all learn from the wounded healer uh, better than anybody else, better than any academic expert. Um, And so 
thank you for your work and thank you for this very honest conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. It's, it's really been a joy. 